Hey, thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us and tell one of your colleagues about the interview you're about to hear or have heard in the past. We hope you enjoy our conversations and that you'll listen to others in our library. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please reach out. We'll do our best to incorporate them. Thanks again. Hi, and welcome to the Real Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and publisher of the registry, Vladimir Bosanets. If you are a listener to our show, welcome back. And for those of you who are finding us for the first time, thank you for joining us. I hope you'll like the interview with our next guest and find it informative. Today, we sit down with Zachary Strait, founder and managing partner of Los Angeles and Nashville-based Way Capital, where he has arranged and closed in excess of $2 billion and has underwritten in excess of $6 billion of debt and equity financings for a broad array of real estate transactions. Zachary has significant experience arranging and closing construction loans, CMBS loans, and private hard money loans across all commercial property types. Today's conversation takes us to the formation of the company, the drivers of the industry, and an overview of commercial real estate lending from a person intimately familiar with it. We hope you'll enjoy the show and share with your colleagues. Welcome to the podcast, Zachary. Zachary, good afternoon. How's it going? Good afternoon. It's going great, Vladimir. Excellent. Where do we find you today? Where are you? Uh, I am in our offices in Century City uh, in Los Angeles. What about you? I am I am just north of Seattle, where it's uh, going to be a hot week this week. So uh, you know, gotcha. Full full All swing right, so of the summer. <laughs> between the two of us, we've got the whole West Coast covered. Yes, exactly, exactly. There we go. Um, Zachary, by way of introduction, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, sort of background in this industry, and sort of you know how the you know winding road, if you will, of your career got you to where you are today. Yeah, uh, happy to. And, and first off, appreciate you having me um, on your podcast. It's really an honor um, and a pleasure. Absolutely, yeah. uh, and hopefully it's it's one you won't live to regret. Um, <laughs> You're going to be doing most yeah, of the talking, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's see. I'll try not to put everyone to sleep. Um, so, so myself and my background, uh, and it is circuitous, you were right. Um, I'm, I'm from L.A. originally. I lived here uh, for the first 18 years of my life. I then moved to New York, where I lived uh, for the first decade of 2000s. Um, I did my undergrad at Yeshiva University um, in political science, um, worked in politics, uh, didn't really like it. So I went to law school um, at Cardozo. Um, didn't like law school, but in my second year of law school, the CFO of Vornado, which is Big Reit, um, yep. came and spoke. And I'm like, hey, you're fascinating. Um, I'd like to come work for you, and my price is free. Um, and he's like, Hey, you can come work for me and I'll pay you. Um, and that was amazing. Joe Mack now. And I, uh, I worked for him for a summer and that really kind of, I don't know, made me catch the real estate bug, uh, the real estate finance bug and, and kind of, you know, opened my eyes to, Hey, there's uh, an industry out there in a direction that I, I really wanted to, uh, to. So if you don't mind me asking, you were, you were in law school at this point. Was there something, you know, about the, you know, legal direction that interested you about the industry or it, it was just a personality of the you know executive from you know Vernado that that kind of you know got you got you thinking about it I I think it was a combination of his uh, personality 
Um, and also I just, I didn't love law school and I just didn't think that I wanted to be a real estate transactional attorney. Figured it was, you know, good education to have. And when I started, I thought, Hey, maybe I would do this, but you know, kind of became clear to me that it wasn't for me. So I kind of had to, had to figure something else out. Um, and you know, I, I should have mentioned, I, I grew up in a family that owned some real estate. So I was exposed to it as a kid and maybe for a while I was trying to move as far away from it as I could. And you know, sometimes <laughs> right. I don't know. The prodigal son, you know, kind of returns or sort of a thing. Um, right. But when I met Joe, I'm like, hey, real estate finance is really interesting. So he hired me for a summer. Um, there wasn't a full-time job available then. Uh, we were going into uh, the great financial crisis. Um, and so what I opted to do in late 07 was um, start NYU's Master's of Real Estate program um, in New York. Great program. Yep. Um, not too many West Coasters from that program, but um, but I liked it. And it, it got me my first job, and I started my first job in January of 2008. Um, things were pretty tough, and I, I worked for a company called Aviva Investors. Um, they're the investment manager arm of Aviva, which is a big Fortune 100 life company based in the UK. And I started working in uh, what's called a real estate fund-to-funds group. So essentially, we would invest um, insurance uh, company parent capital um, into uh, U.S. real estate funds. Yeah. Um, and I really got kind of... Um, sort of a sense of the who's who of the GP landscape uh, of big fund managers that are out there. Um, I did that for about three and a half years. I then moved back to um, Los Angeles in 2011. I was fortunate enough to meet my wife shortly after moving back, and we've been together 10 years now and have two kids, uh, which is really amazing, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, and I spent the first three years of my career in L.A. building out a hard money lending platform for my family's family office, um, decided to move in a different direction in 2014. So I took a job writing CMBS loans on pools of single family rentals at Colony Capital. Okay. Um, in a, in a company that is now called Corvest. Um, okay. it was called Colony American Finance. And interestingly, I met the Colony guys at my Aviva days. Um, and so there was some kind of connection to that. And while I was at Colony and before I even um, you know, really knew that I'd ever become a capital advisor. Um, a guy named Malcolm Davies from George Smith Partners sent me a deal. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't do that deal, but he and I kept up. Um, I left Colony. I did a couple consulting gigs for about a year and then um, decided, hey, the principal side of the business, debt and equity, wasn't really working for me. Could I be a capital advisor? Um, in 2016, um, you know, with the help of Malcolm and others, I decided to start at George Smith Partners. I spent the first five years of my advisory career there, or maybe five and a half. And um, earlier this year, I uh, left George Smith Partners and started working uh, with Malcolm at a new company we founded um, called Way Capital. Uh, so super exciting. We started the company April 1. Um, and, and, and so it's kind of a, a neat road that I took from you know, political science to attorney Right. Uh, to principal side of real estate, to brokerage side. So it isn't linear, um, as you said it was, but but I am thankful for a pretty varied experience because I think all of that has sort of shaped who I am. I'm grateful for it. And I think it's all kind of informed my practice and kind of gives me a, a broader perspective on what it is that I do and maybe a renewed appreciation um, for it. I mean, if you would have told me in business school that I would have been a broker, I probably would have laughed because it wasn't always something that, you know, people smiled at and thought, hey, this is like a prestigious thing <laughs> right, to do. But right. you know what? I, I I sometimes wish I'd come to it earlier because um, I take a lot of satisfaction in, in really helping folks. And at the end of the day, as a broker, that's what you do. You're helping businesses scale. 
and you're helping folks kind of piece together their deals. And, and I, I've grown to really, really enjoy that. Yeah, excellent. So Way Capital started, like you said earlier this year. Tell us about kind of yeah. that process of, you know, kicking off a, uh, yeah. you know, lending capital com- company essentially, right? Um, here at the early part of 2022 following yeah. you know, COVID and all of that. Um, you know, that process must have been interesting to say the least, right? Yeah, look, uh, starting a business is not easy. Not going to lie to you. Uh, I think, you know, folks who have done it know it and it stops many from doing it. But I think, um, you know, myself and my partner, Malcolm, we decided to form um, Way Capital April 1 of this year. Um, he had been a capital advisor for 10 years, I for six years. Um, we um, had a pretty strong track record. Um, just our team, he and I, and the kind of eight folks who work exclusively for us or our team of 10 was doing about a billion dollars a year, um, you know, at our predecessor company, um, annually, somewhere between a billion and a billion and a half in financings that we'd arranged. Um, so we were kind of a self-contained business almost. Um, and we decided, you know what, we wanted to plant our own flag, uh, market and brand our own way and, you know, see if we couldn't build our own company. So, um, we did that, uh, formally, uh, April 1 after a lot of thought and a lot of strategic planning, but you know, they say man plans and God laughs. So you have to be very sort of (laughs) nimble and strategic when you you form a business. But we, uh, we had a really successful, um, I guess, second quarter, which was our first quarter of operations. We arranged 400 million in financing, uh, which was amazing. Um, we've already probably done, um, in the third quarter somewhere around, uh, I don't know, is it like a hundred and, I don't know, 60 or 70 million. And by the end of this week, hopefully we'll be over 200 uh, just for this quarter alone. So it's been really an excellent run rate. It's almost like we picked up where we left off and we're proud of it. Um, Way, just, you know, by way of background is um, a strategic debt and equity capital advisory firm. Um, So we're not lenders. We're not equity investors. We're we're brokers, uh, you know, on our worst day and investment bankers on our best day. And every day in the middle, we're, we're capital advisors. Um, but yeah. really yeah. Uh, similar focus to what we were doing at our predecessor company where we help yeah. sponsors, um, entrepreneurial sponsors doing institutional level deals, arrange debt and equity for their financings. Um, we focus a lot on hospitality and multifamily transactions. Those yep. two, I'd say, are our bread and butter. We do some commercial business as well. Um, most of the transactions we work on are between, um, let's say, 30 million kind of total capitalization to 150 million or greater. So we're not doing really small deals. We're not doing the multi-billion dollar deals. We're sort of that sweet spot in the middle market. And I think what, what really separates us, um, you know, from a lot of other shops out there are two things. Um, um, Malcolm's got experience um, as a developer. I spent a lot of years on the debt and equity side. So we bring, you know, quite a lot of varied experience between us. Maybe more than that, um, we've got a very large team. So we've got, you know, a company, a small company now, but big team. We've got, you know, eight folks that work for us and that focus for, on execution for deals. And a lot of the deals we're doing in the middle market are, are tough. Um, they're not, you know, necessarily pristine. They do have hair on them. Um, they have, you know, complicated stories that need to be told, um, issues that need to be sold through. Um, and, and, and you need focus and you need momentum to be built in the capital markets when you are marketing a deal. And that requires resources. And so our view has always been spend a lot of money on, on your team, have a, you know, yep. pretty large payroll, which is a lot to stomach as an entrepreneur. But we think really the secret sauce to helping our clients get their deal done. That and tremendous hustle. 
Um, you always have to be pushing. You always have to be creative, especially in a market that's changing. You have to adapt and, and to adapt quickly. And, and you have to really understand, like, not just who you know, but how you know how to get them to do a deal. Um, and those yep. two things yep. are, are really quite different. So I would say that's, um, you know, that's way we're, we're Denver and West typically in asset classes historically, but we just opened an office in Nashville. So we hope to grow our Southeast footprint. Um, and, um, you know, we hope to grow our headcount also. So it's kind of, um, an exciting time, uh, to, yeah. despite some economic yeah. headwinds. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say, I mean, starting, you know, April 1st and you guys are already talking about three <laughs> offices and doing, uh, you know, you know, a couple hundred million in, you know, deals. That's, that's, uh, you know, pretty amazing. So, thank you. um, let's take a step back and sort yeah. of just kind of give me a sense of, how you're reading, you know, in terms of what's happening, you know, across the, um, you know, industry. We're mm-hmm. you know, talking here, you know, late July, early August of, you know, 2022. You know, things are still a little bit shaky in terms of what's happening with, uh, you know, valuations and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But you guys seem to be more engaged towards multifamily <coughs> and uh, hospitality, which I think mm-hmm. are two sectors that have kind of done relatively well. Mm-hmm. But but overall, how do you how do you sort of see the market? Um, how do you see stuff on the lending side? Yeah. Um, I'm asking a bunch of questions here, so feel, <laughs> feel free to parse them, right? And also, you know, how do you how do you perceive, you know, things with um, you know increased um, interest rates potential, you know, R word um, and yeah. you know where where the that R-word. where that may take the industry over the next you know year or so, right? Got it. Uh, that, that's a lot to bite off. Uh, and so if I, if I miss something, feel free to, to re-ask yeah, it, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, uh, who was it? Was it Shakespeare that said, it, it's, see, we live in interesting times or it's good to live in interesting times? So we, we definitely are living in, in interesting times. You, you have sort of really three kind of factors at play, which are kind of at odds against each other. You have yep. one factor, yep. which is the higher interest rates that are about to get higher on Wednesday, right? I think we've had, uh, what is it, about 125 basis points in hikes already, or 150, yep. and we're going to have another 75 to 100 bips likely on Wednesday. So you kind of have all in somewhere between 200 and 250 bips of hike in probably four months. That's a lot to absorb in any period of time, and it's certainly a lot to absorb on a percentage basis when rates started so low. So there is no question yeah. that that is a shock to the system, and you are seeing that shock reverberate throughout the system. Um, lenders are resetting underwriting standards. You know, agency takeout financing on multifamily, for example, which is a popular benchmark, was probably 3% six months ago, and now it's between 45 and 5%. You know, you had debt funds that were doing deals at 300 over SOFR six months ago. And today, and that's when SOFR was basically zero or it was 10 bips. And today yeah. you're, you're probably not clearing anything at less than 400 over SOFR and SOFR's 225 basis points. So that means your, your effective bridge rate went from 3% to six and change. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you've had a massive repricing in the market. Um, you know, and that's had a tectonic effect through the investment sales market, et cetera. On the other hand, you also have a ton of liquidity out there, um, you know, just that has been not deployed uh, over the years. Yep. And then with the Fed yep. printing a lot of paper um, and buying a lot of bonds. Um, and you also had phenomenal rent growth and you've also had pretty phenomenal employment growth in a lot of places. So you almost have twin factors at play, you know, with rising interest rates on the one hand 
and a lot of liquidity and rent growth on the other hand. And it's unclear to know, you know, which is going to last and for how long. Um, yep. So I think the interesting thing is to watch both all those factors in terms of how those are impacting the market. Um, deals are still getting done, which is great, um, but it is much harder to do them, you know, without without question. Um, everything is subject to more scrutiny. There's more uncertainty that's out there. There are a lot of guys that are like, hey, you know, we kind of want to hit pause for a minute here, take a breath and figure out, like, is there going to be a bunch of rescue opportunities? Like, is real estate going to go on sale in the next six to 12 months and values are going to come down? And so why deploy now versus later? You definitely have that segment out there. You also have guys that are saying, hey, there's a little bit less competition. Rates are a little bit higher. I still want to put out money because I think this is yeah. a great time yeah. to put out money and enjoy the benefit of rates that are a little higher that I couldn't get three to six months ago. So you kind of have, you know, all of those dynamics out there. Um, from our perspective, everything is a little bit tougher. We're, we're geared for it, right? We, we're staffed to scale. We've got eight people supporting myself and Malcolm's originations. And, um, you know, we, we're sort of used to doing tough deals. And so the environment gets a little tougher. Um, it isn't that much of a shock to us. Uh, because yeah. most of the stuff we're working on is, you know, fairly large and fairly complicated. It's just sort of, you know, one more challenge. And it, it, it's one that we can absorb. Um, we don't hide the ball from our clients. All the feedback I'm giving you, we're kind of giving them in real time. And they sort of know where things are. And, you know, we're just doing our best to kind of find the needle in the haystack, the best possible partner in, in a time where there's increased volatility. And, and I would say in those periods of time, partnerships matter more. Lender relationships yep. Yep. matter more. It's not about every last basis point. It's about who's not going to walk a week from closing. It's about who's not going to retrade you because they feel like they have you in a tight spot. And, and, and knowledge of that capital partner, I think, becomes increasingly more important when you're dealing with, you know, times of times of volatility. Yeah. And let's get back to that point in just one second, because I think that's, you know, when you and I spoke, you said that was certainly one of the distinctions of how you guys do it and what you guys do. But really, really quickly, um, just before we switch to that, one quick follow-up question on the um, sort of industry overall. Have you noticed, kind of given all the circumstances that are happening throughout the, you know, commercial real estate space today, any aspect of the industry slowing down. So is construction slowing down? Mm -hmm. Is acquisition slowing down? Things are definitely harder, but is it harder to the point where um, it's not happening? Or is it just sort of harder to the point until we all kind of come to some kind of you know new equilibrium in terms of where, where things are? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question. So, you know, real estate is a bit of a lagging indicator um, as our cap rates. They don't move as quickly as interest rates move. They don't reprice as quickly as the stock or the bond market because, um, you know, real estate's fundamentally illiquid. Um, and, and so I don't think you've seen real estate values yet go down 20% or 25% yeah. the way the stock market right. has. Um, certainly everything that's going on has slowed things down. Um, it's slowed the pace of investment sales for sure. Um, it slowed the number of bidders, um, for sure. Um, I think all the core open-ended funds have redemption queues from what I understand right now because, you know, they um, only allocate a percentage of the overall pension fund portfolio to real estate. When stocks are down 20%, you have to liquidate real estate. So that's kind of taken a whole buyer segment out of right. the market. That's going to impact the investment sales market for sure. Um, I've heard of scenarios where, you know, they've gone from 20 bidders to three. Um, and I've heard of scenarios where, you know, all those three bidders are bidding below market and there's a big bid ask spread. 
Um, so for sure, it's slowed the pace of transactions. And I think you'll see that um, probably in the, in the third quarter, you know, well, it'll post in the fourth quarter. But when we look back to the third quarter, you will definitely see um, slowing transaction volumes as a result of that. Um, on the construction side, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting because you've got a couple unique factors at play. Um, you had tremendous inflation in construction costs, as you know, yeah. um, over yes. the last couple of years. Um, it seems like at least the sticker prices of, you know, construction materials has gone down. Um, I keep asking my clients, so have you seen this in your bids yet? And it seems like the general answer I'm getting is not yet, but we expect to. Um, the other thing that's interesting is I'm actually hearing about more GCs and more subs basically calling, uh, sponsors for business and bidding deals, um, than I had six months ago. So it seems like some of them are less busy than they were. And that could yep. be because of higher interest rates, um, you know, or just or just other factors, um, you know, that are out there, maybe projects um, taking longer than folks thought due to regulatory issues or maybe sponsors saying, heck, I want to shell this for a minute here because, you know, the market seems a little crazy right now. So you do have, we have some, seen that. Yes. Yeah. You, you do have some potential good news on the construction front, because, my gosh, you know, if you had to deal with higher prices. Um, and higher interest rates, that, that's really a double whammy. That's, that's tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's the, it's the forward looking indicators versus the back looking indicators. CPI is obviously very high, but, you know, construction costs, at least sticker prices having moderated is, is a really encouraging sign going forward. Um, so I think, yeah. I think on that construction front, it's interesting. There is no question there's been a major pullback by the home builders, right? With 6% or 5.5% 30-year mortgage rate, you can't help but note that a lot of the home builders have, have pulled back and that, you know, home builder sentiment, I think, you know, last month had like a record drop. And, you know, that's that's to be expected even if construction costs are coming down because, you know, they have to look at their end user who is the home buyer and all of a sudden their, you know, cost of debt, like, you know, went up significantly one and a half yeah. to two times. Yeah. So, so that's something to watch also. Yeah. So back to sort of your expertise and not just your technical expertise, but your ability to form partnerships and kind of, you know, you highlighted that as a very important aspect of sort of how to make sure that deals get, you know, done. Uh, tell us a little bit about this because I think some of these soft skills, quite honestly, are also what, you know, help companies, you know, throughout tough times, and we are kind of entering a time of of uncertainty. I'm also curious, you know, how are you guys now that you've been in business for a quarter <laughs> and a half? <laughs> a whole quarter, uh, right? right? <laughs> uh, a whole quarter and a half, right? How are you thinking about, you know, you know, um, you know, weathering the next, you know, couple of years, right? Um, mm -hmm. And where, where, where is that? Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it, it's a really, really good question. Um, I don't think we're going to go into sort of full paralysis um, in the same way we did maybe for the first quarter or two in, you know, po like when COVID first hit. So call it the second and third quarter of 2020. Um, I do think that for a period of time, things could get tougher. It really depends how much rates go up and for how long. If they go up for a moment in time and then inflation cools and they come back down, um, then only people who are pinched for that period of time are really going to have an issue. If they stay, you know, high for a long period of time, um, then I think, um, you know, it could be tougher for folks and there could be more, more rescue capital opportunities. I think, I think for us, um, 
we might even be more valuable when times are tough um, because uh, we specialize in doing tough deals that require a lot of selling um, and that really require a pretty big infrastructure. Um, you know, we really bring an in institutional expertise to the middle market where other firms, you know, can't spend time on deals that are tougher because they just aren't capitalized in a way where it makes sense for them. So myself and Malcolm capitalized our firm closely held. So we have no outside debt. We have no outside investors. We keep a hundred percent of every fee that comes in the door. Many of our competitors, you know, have to give away 50% of every dollar that comes in the door to their sure. shareholders and investors. And so they can only afford to do deals that have a very high certainty of execution. I have limited manpower and resources, and it's tougher for them to work hard deals through. So I think for us, if things get tough, you know, we're, we're well suited for it and can continue to help um, help our clients, you know, on all facets of their business, um, you know, both both debt and equity. We spend a fair amount of time on both parts of the stack. I didn't mention that before, but, you know, I look at equity and I say, hey, some degree that that's kind of our investment sales. And so we spend a lot of time introducing our clients to um, equity partners that are out there, you know, larger ones, generally guys writing, you know, equity checks of 10 million and up. So very institutional yeah. in their nature, um, you know, and that that results in a lot of deal flow and a lot of I think, loyalty, both from the clients and the equity sources, um, et cetera. So I think, you know, we probably will continue to benefit from that in, in a variety of ways, um, you know, and in a variety of different parts of the capital stack. So, you know, I think I think for us as an advisor, clearly, you know, the biggest challenge is if the market paralyzes. But we don't really see that. We don't think that's going to occur. And we, we are busier than we've ever been. Um, so uh, we're very proud of that. And continues. Yeah. On a sort of macroeconomic level, do you foresee the strength of the U.S. dollar helping with some of the some of the some of the liquidity in in a sense that you know money from outside the country might be coming in and um, you know investing in um, you know assets across the U.S. as well? Um, any thoughts on that, and will, will that help the industry in any way? Well, great question. So I'm not a macroeconomist. I got to start with that qualification. Yeah, of it, course. Is some, yeah, yeah. it is something I've thought about. Like you could have another major external shock. Um, the war in Ukraine is a great example. I mean, that could flare up, get worse. You could have another war break out and there could be a real flight to safety and quality and, and the U.S. dollar and the, tr and the U.S. treasuries have benefited from that. So should that occur, that is definitely something that could put downward pressure on interest rates. So, um, what kind of other you know industry trends are you are you noticing? Is there anything about sort of what's happening throughout the industry today mm -hmm. that is surprising you? Yeah, um, I think one thing to note is is how quickly asset classes can shift. Um, so, I think twelve to eighteen months ago, um, there was nothing more difficult than financing hotels. I think they were just the toughest asset class, um, and they rebounded. Um, and there's you know more capital available than there was uh, for a long time. And we've probably completed oh, I don't know six or seven hotel transactions in the last six to nine months, uh, which has been a good thing to see. And we're working on others. Um, office has replaced hotels as probably the toughest asset class to finance. Um, so, you know, it is not an easy time to own office. Now, not all, not all offices created equally, um, you know, sure. creative office, office in, you know, major core markets with long-term, you know, weighted average leases in place. Uh, I think you're doing fine, but, you know, half empty class B, C suburban office is extremely tough, um, to finance right now. That's definitely an industry trend that's out there. Um, industrial and multifamily, 
um, and within multifamily build to rent where we spend a lot of our time, um, both still very strong asset classes, even with, you know, some of the macroeconomic volatility there that's out there. No question that there is probably more liquidity as there has been um, available for these asset classes than ever before. We're probably working on six or seven build to rent deals um, in California um, okay. and in other, you know, major Southwest markets uh, that are yeah, out there yeah. um, and some further afoot in the Southeast. So that, that kind of remains. Now, nobody is immune to you know the pressure of interest rates on um on 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 dcr underwriting um and that's another big trend that's changed in the industry it used to be that nobody for the last i don't know two years talked about debt coverage ratio everybody only talked about debt yields and now because rates are so high debt yields matter less and debt coverage ratio uh matters a lot more so that's a kind of another trend that's out there i think i think the last trend that's really interesting um, and that we've noted for probably a year or two now is 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 the power of liquidity coming from the retail investor into commercial real estate. Um, and this is most, I think, um, acutely highlighted by the crowdfunding sites that are out there. Right. There, there is no question that there is a whole new segment of liquidity for commercial real estate, and that is retail investors investing through, you know, primarily CrowdStreet, but also, you know, Realty Mogul, Yield Street. Um, yep. And the numerous other fundrise, the numerous other sites that are out there, um, and they are a force to be reckoned with. I think last year or so, um, CrowdStreet did like a billion five or a billion six in equity that it raised for projects. Um, and this year, I think it was on pace to meet that or beat it. That that is a huge amount of liquidity yeah. that previously didn't exist because it didn't have a way of entering into the commercial real estate space. When you look at that in conjunction with the private REITs, you know that Blackstone and others have raised, all of a sudden you have a massive demand pool that wasn't there before. So, you know, that could have a positive impact on real estate that could offset um, some of the higher interest rates that we're seeing. So I think that's a trend to watch very closely in the industry. And I don't see that going away. In fact, I only see it growing. And that should be a good thing for values overall. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Given sort of the landscape of uh, you know the part of the industry that you know you're not engaged in, and kind of how you're seeing things evolve there, does that give you guys an opportunity to grow a little bit bigger outside of your core markets of multifamily and hospitality? Um, I th I think so. I mean, we 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 never weren't in the commercial space. I would say we're always doing you know one or two retail or office deals. So I wouldn't say it's outside our wheelhouse um, at all. Um, we've done some really interesting projects over the past year. We're we're working on kind of a, a trophy project um, in Austin right now. That's 130,000 square feet of commercial and retail, um, new build, fully leased. Um, that needs bridge financing. We put bridge financing on a kind of trophy jewel box asset on Abbott Kinney. Uh, some people will know that street. It's a very probably one of the two, um, I think, most trafficked, most coveted, um, you know, kind of high street retail um, streets uh, in LA. Um, we financed a deal called Chapman Market uh, a year ago, which is uh, a very interesting um, kind of uh, old world's kind of Spanish revivalist architecture that's got a bunch of very cool Korean barbecue restaurants that are in it. So um, we always do a lot of that. I think for us, we really represent the entrepreneurial sponsor um, doing the yep. institutional deal. And generally, those guys are in um, multifamily and hospitality, but we also find commercial and retail. 
Um, and we find them sometimes in large scale development deals. So I would say at any one time, we're probably working on, you know, four or five deals that are north of a hundred million dollars, if not more, um, that have large scale development components. Um, probably more sophisticated, you know, some of, some of the more sophisticated sponsors or more sophisticated entrepreneurial sponsors, you know, working in those spaces just because those projects are so big and so complicated. Um, but I definitely think that the rise of the retail investor can help. I mean, you've seen some pretty big deals get done on CrowdStreet, um, you know, where they're buying, buying pretty big assets. I, it'd be interesting to look at what the biggest was. Um, but you know, I, I definitely think there were some transactions that were in the call it 60 to hundred million dollar range that, that occurred on sure. the site, which is sure. pretty cool. We, we raised, uh, for one of our projects about $30 million of, of, of equity, um, on CrowdStreet for a deal that I think had a total capitalization of 120 million. So that's gotta be, you know, up there. Maybe that is the largest uh, single deal that they've done. So I think, you know, as, as, the retail investor platforms grow, um, you know, no question. And there's more liquidity on the exit for deals. Yeah. No, no question that, you know, entrepreneurial sponsors are going to take note and it will kind of fuel their confidence that, Hey, when they build something, you know, there is going to be somebody there to buy it at the end and, yeah. and all that yeah. hard work and value creation, you know, is going to have a takeout. So, so for yeah. sure. Yeah. As, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's, you know, um, you know, just started a business, um, you know, how do you look at beyond sort of where we are today, you know, beyond this cycle into, into sort of the next cycle, right? Yeah. Obviously there's lessons learned over the last 24, you know, 36 months, you mm-hmm. know, with COVID and all that. Um, but how, how, how are you guys looking at sort of setting up the organization and, you know, setting yourselves up to be successful, you know, once, um, I, I don't want to say like things normalize because I feel like they're always, you know, moving and fluid, but um, at, at least until we're in the next sort of, uh, you know, cycle, if you will. Yeah. Um, so it's a great question. It, it's really easy to just kind of think about, you know, the deals that are in front of you and not the future. Um, I think we always try and allocate time to think not only in the business, but on the business. And what are the things that we can be doing, you know, on a big picture basis to, to really prepare to scale the company for the future. Um, I think the things that we think about are um, expanding um, into other regions like we did into Nashville. Um, yep. I'd love to see us in other areas of the country. Um, you know, maybe, maybe an office in Miami, maybe an office in Texas, maybe one in Chicago, maybe one um, um, up, up in Seattle. Um, uh, so office expansion is a big thing. Um, I think cultivating talent um, and really growing it and making sure that everybody on our team feels valued, um, you know, qualitatively and quantitatively, um, you know, in terms of culture, environment, growth trajectory, and also, of course, comp, right? None of us are in this for free, is really important in yeah. growing that talent and growing the next level is something that's really important to us. So people that we try and hire, um, we hope can grow into producers, um, you know, at our shop because they come out of our culture and Perhaps they, you know, stay here in LA or, you know, perhaps they have a home market or another market they want to go to because they have family there or they want to move there once they get married and, and can, you know, kind of help, um, you know, sort of promulgate and uh, really grow our cause. So I think, I think that's, that's definitely something we think about, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the future. And then uh, look, you can never forget how you got to where you are. So, you know, best practices vis-a-vis our current clients, making sure that, um, we can service all of their needs and that we provide kind of like tip top institutional quality execution. 
that can never be, um, you know, far, far from mind. Because I think the second you, you forget about that and forget about, you know, the here and now, um, you know, you can have some real losses on the revenue side of your ledger and it can be very, very difficult, um, to run a business. So it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of dynamics to juggle for sure. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, whether it's respect to opening offices or growing talent or servicing our client, I think we really look at it all as one and the same is, you know, how can we deploy best practices and refine best practices in all of these regards to really become the premier kind of strategic capital advisory firm, um, you know, that, that we want to grow into and want to be. Yeah. Um, as you have sort of, you know, told, told us about kind of how you got into this business, mm-hmm. right? Um, not sort of a, you know, straight line, but it, you know, never yeah. is, right? Um, you know, what would be kind of your personal message to somebody trying to, you know, get into this business, especially now, right? Um, and, you know, are there certain mentors that they could seek, certain <laughs> kind of ways to get into the industry? Um, you know, what, what would be kind of a, you know, you know, something you would advise, you know, maybe your younger self or uh, you know, somebody, somebody coming out of business school or out of, or out of, you know, college, you know, thinking about commercial real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, uh, I used to work at, at Colony Capital um, and there was two things that Tom Barrick there was, was fond of saying. And I, you know, I know that he's in a tough place in his life and um, that's pretty unfortunate, but um, he was a pretty successful guy. And, he said two things that really, really have stuck with me, um, you know, my whole career. He was often fond of saying, you know, number one, just show up. Um, and number two, don't swim upstream. Um, and those two things will mean something different to everybody. Um, you know, to me, when I think about them, I think about just, you know, being really patient, just showing up, continuing to be patient, and, and also, you know, not giving up. Um, at some point, you don't want to swim too much upstream, so you have to figure out where that line is. But for me, what those two things have really translated into is just being patient and not giving up. So I think, you know, in addition to those bigger picture comments from Tom, what I would tell my younger self is just be patient, don't give up, continue to work hard, and good things will happen. Now, when I transitioned to the advisory side of the business in 16, I, I wasn't sure I could make it, just being honest. I had principal side experience. Uh, which informed the advisory practice, but it didn't have an established book of business. Um, and I wasn't sure, you know, what it would be like in a kind of broker deal-making role. I had dealt with a lot of brokers, but I had never been one myself. Um, and, and it took some time, um, but but it's really blossomed. And I think if I could, you know, kind of, I don't know, advise my younger self at that stage in my career or other sort of intersections, junctures in my career, I would say just, you know, take a deep breath, be patient and just keep working hard. Don't give up because if you do both of those, you cut yourself some slack, you just keep your head down, you work hard, generally good things will come from it. Zachary, uh, excellent. That's fantastic advice. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Uh, Stay well. My pleasure. Thanks so much again for having me, Vladimir. It was a real pleasure uh, chatting with you. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business. (music) 